This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the new novel, The Animators, first with the author, Kayla Ray Whitaker, and then with my guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. And stay tuned at the end of the show for a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. Two poor girls from rural America somehow managed to find their way to a private East Coast college, and from there, to each other. Mel, tough, aggressive, magnetic, knows she will be a cartoonist. Sharon, uncertain, unsure, insecure, knows only there are things she wants to make, but not yet how they will get made. The two become best friends and partners. A decade later, They are still at it, about to release an animated film about Mel's past, which will bring them the acclaim they've been seeking. And that's just the first 25 pages. The animators takes us in directions we don't expect it to go, from Brooklyn to Florida to Kentucky, from one painful past to another, from one great loss to a second, even greater one. I had the opportunity to speak with author Kayla Rabidiker last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Kayla Ray Whitaker grew up in Kentucky and received her BA from the University of Kentucky and her MFA from New York University. The Animators is her first novel. Kayla, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio, 103.5 FM. Oh, thanks for having me, Sid. This is great. So, Kayla, you are a writer, but one of the things I found so interesting about this book was that you're choosing to write about a visual medium. Sharon and Mel are animators, they're artists. They tell their stories through pictures, not words. And so by writing about them, you set yourself this challenge where you have to describe their work in such a way to us that we can see the films that they're making. So first, I guess, why do this? Why not just make them writers where you can reproduce their words instead of having to translate one medium into another? Well, I think the answer to to why I chose to to write about cartoonists is pure envy. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I've I've always loved um, both comics and and cartoons, and cartoons were a really big part of my imaginative landscape from a very young age. And for that reason, I, I simply found it more interesting to, to imagine the life of, of these two artists and to sort of live through them vicariously. Um, I found that more interesting than, than writing about writers. Um, I mean, the writer I know best is me, and I'm not that interesting, honestly. So, so this was kind of a way of... Um, of, of branching out into the world and of experiencing a, a life that wasn't mine, frankly, which, um, which is really important to me when, when I'm writing fiction. And was it challenging to do that, to have to kind of describe what they were making in terms that would allow us to see it? 
Uh, it was. Um, and what I found is that um, that vision of what Sharon and Mel were making, their shorts and their cartoons, that vision kind of became clearer and clearer with every successive draft of the book, which I think can be said for many other elements of the book, the dialogue, the character, character development, but definitely what they were seeing, what we were seeing, it, um, it, it became... It became almost a third character uh, for me. I, I had an idea at the very outset of what I wanted their cartoons to look like because I'm such a fangirl and I, <laughs> I have my own particular tastes and, and my favorites. So I always I kind of imagined Sharon and Mel's work to be an even cross between John Kay, who... Um, is um, probably most famous for Ren and Stimpy, the children's cartoon show uh, of the 1990s. And Ralph Bakshi, who did the first really definitive alternative animation films from the 1970s. Really bright and loud and and sort of in your face, for lack of a better term. That was my vision of, of their work. And it, it just became clear to me over time. So I find this so interesting because... I am not a visual person at all, and mm-hmm. I am someone who responds almost only to words. Um, and in fact, my uh, my oldest friend, who is going to be on the show in the second half talking about this book with me, was visiting my family not that long ago and was talking about some graphic novels that her children like. And my mm-hmm. oldest daughter, who is 10, said, in our house, we read books with words. <laughs> <laughs> And then my friend mailed us two graphic novels Mm -hmm. and all four of my daughters became completely obsessed with them Mm -hmm. and are still completely obsessed with them. And I have to say that now that I have read some of these graphic novels, I am more I am more swayed. I mean, obviously, you can tell where my oldest daughter got it from. But I find it really interesting because I always kind of think of there being a dichotomy between people who respond to pictures and people who respond to words. And here you are, someone who's a writer but you kind of describe yourself as someone who is more drawn to the visual. Do you see that as in conflict at all? Were you always someone who was drawn to both? You know, I think maybe it's a generational thing that there's this sort of, um, you know, there's a generation of people who, who read and I read voraciously as a kid, as as a kid, I was, I was very much a loner. And so I spent a lot of time with my books and I spent a lot of time with the television set. And because we had we had cable, we we definitely had more more channels and sort of more exposure than than our parents. I think we could have a more intimate relationship with what we were seeing. And luckily for me, what I was seeing was was they were cartoons that were I think for cable television really daring. One of the one show that had a really huge impact uh, on me was the um, the showcase um, from MTV in the early 90s, Liquid Television. Which is mentioned in the book. Oh, yes, it's mentioned in the book, yeah. So it's uh, I would have had a lot of the same television uh, exposure as Sharon. Liquid Television was, it was so weird. It was deeply weird. Some of the some of the earliest episodes actually aired um, some very early Mike Judge work before he did Beavis and Butthead. I was instantly drawn to that, and that that occupied a, a big part of a big part of the imaginative space in in my brain in a, a really big way. So, you know, I don't think there's as much of a 
a division and perhaps it comes from I I I came from a household where thankfully uh my parents didn't they they didn't put down a whole lot of um barriers as to what I could or couldn't watch on television which is something I really respect in in retrospect I think that was great of them because of that I I found influences through these two different mediums and they they came to complement each other so we did a book on the show a few months ago David Gilbert's novel, And Sons, which involves a Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist. And parts of this novelist's most famous book are reproduced within the novel. And I was reminded of that with your novel, because Sharon and Mel's two big films, Nashville Combat and Irrefutable Love, are both critically acclaimed. And you describe both of the films in some detail. And in that book, And Sons, and in this one, it feels like you run the risk that the work you describe won't live up to the praise that you claim it receives. Did you worry about that? I I absolutely did. I, <laughs> I I made sure to to mention at certain points that they are they are certainly panned. Their work is panned, and in that way that I think is is very specific to when when rather extreme work is made by women. You can almost always expect uh, some sort of, um, you know, backlash from that. And I, I wanted to make that a very real part of the story. You know, this is what happens when you put a piece of work out into the world and and you are female. You know, you are, in a sense, kind of setting yourself up for some very, really extreme criticism because of a lot of implicit expectations that uh, that are still sort of pressed on on women who make things. Yes, and and there was also, you know, there was the um, the worry that that what they were making either occupied uh, too much of the narrative or too little of the narrative, or you know, was at the end of the day underdeveloped. You know, I wanted to give their work its space in in the pages without without hampering the plot in a real way. So I, I think that was that was maybe a bigger concern for me, honestly, is that achieving that sense of balance. Yeah, I have to say for me, that worked beautifully. And in fact, was one of the things I loved most about the book. But it felt very brave of you to take on because it felt like it could have, there were so many ways it could backfire. Um, And yet you pulled it off, which of course, like when you pull it off, it's brilliant. And if it fails, then it's a failure. Yeah. You know, well, thank you for saying that. You mentioned the word extreme in talking about their filmmaking. And uh, there are a lot of extreme things that happen in this book. I'm not going to give everything away, but I will say there are some spoilers here. So listeners may want to pause and finish reading the book before listening to the rest of this podcast. Uh, One of your characters has a stroke. Two characters die. There's a revelation about sexual abuse, which is a lot for one novel to contain. And I wondered in writing it, if you outlined it that way, or if you felt like the book led you in those directions and they might've sometimes surprised you. I think one of the greatest joys of writing fiction is actually in that sense of surprise. I've never really been able to adhere to outlines and I'm, I'm really interested in, in how other writers work with their outlines and how closely they adhere to them and when they decide to kind of toss them out the window. For me, it's just, just from the outset. I've never been able to, to build a story off of an outline. Um, my preferred method is to, to sit down and with a handful of scenes and with some dialogue, kind of see where the story takes me. 
while having sort of a, a, a vague notion of the book's shape. And, and that's in the very first uh, in the very first draft. I, I do have to say that um, I like big books. I like big books with a wide scope where lots of things happen. And, you know, I think one of one of my favorite books of the, the last couple of years is probably A Little Life. It's close to 700 pages, I think. I mean, it's it's twice the length of, of this book. So this book doesn't, you know, doesn't come close, I think, in terms of scope. But but I think as a reader, that's what I gravitate towards. It's, you know, toward a world um, that uh, in which I can stay for a while and get comfortable. And so the idea of, you know, this... This particular, you know, three or four year block of Sharon and Mel's lives, the idea that this is, you know, this is a block of time in which a lot of, you know, really pivotal stuff happens and they they change in really striking ways. That was that was part of the story. That was definitely the time frame that I kind of wanted to capture. Yes, I don't want this whole interview to be me saying, yes, I loved that about this book. But um, but I did love that about this book. It did really feel like you were inhabiting their lives with them for a while. And I loved the scope of that and the world it generated. But were there things, I mean, were there things that surprised you, things that you didn't anticipate happening and that, you know, looking back on it, you're like, wow, I really didn't think that was going to happen. But that's where the book took me. Uh, well, um, this is a little bit of a, a spoiler alert, I suppose. Go for <laughs> it. That we can, yeah, go back and give give warning. Yeah, um, warning, warning given, people. Okay, <laughs> great. So I I knew I knew that Sharon and Teddy would find Teddy's father's photographs. In fact, that was one of the real first clear visions I got of Sharon. It was Sharon at nine years old in that room, in, in front of that open trunk, making this, this discovery that she's, she's pretty much going to, you know, she's going to minimize and she's going to bury in her head for the next 20 years. This is one of the most important things that will, that will happen to her. And unfortunately, one of the most defining. I knew that that was going to happen. And I knew that she was going to reconnect with Teddy, if anything, to find answers. What I really didn't expect was Sharon's development of her own life and her own story as a piece of, of work. I knew, of mm -hmm. course, that Mel had done this earlier in the book, but I was a bit surprised, actually, when I was writing this scene and it became apparent to me that Mel was going to talk her into this. And my response, and, and I'm, you know, I'm writing these characters, but even my response was, you're going to let her talk you into this? Because while it's it's an important piece of work, and I think that that's why Mel pushes her to develop the idea, it's also a wrenching piece of work. And it's a piece of work that's going to make people uncomfortable and unhappy. And um, Sharon absolutely loads confrontation. So I found myself a bit surprised that she she actually sort of took the challenge and and moved forward with that. It's, I did not see that coming. It's so interesting to hear you say that that's what surprised you, because to me, that seems structurally to make so much sense in the book. You know, the book begins with them releasing this one film of Mel's story and then moves to them doing the second film of Sharon's story. And so structurally, that, that mirroring seemed to make so much sense. And so I'm 
I'm just surprised to hear you say that was what surprised you because I thought maybe some of the other things, some of the more dramatic moments that I mentioned uh, in passing earlier um, would have been the ones that shocked you versus that which seemed, you know, if I, if I could imagine you having an outline, I could see that being part of it. Sure. Yeah. It, it ended up being a happy accident. I think one of the other uh, moments of surprise, and it's maybe a moment of surprise for, for other readers as well, is Sharon's argument with her mom. When her mom, when Mrs. Kisses tells Sharon, you know, in the, the heat of rage that, that Teddy might be her half brother, that was kind of a gasp moment. It's like, wow, that is, that is mean. That <laughs> <laughs> was mean. Well, you, you leave a lot of things open-ended, big things. Like, mm-hmm. we never really know the story of Mel's mother's death or whether it had anything to do with the movie that Mel and Sharon made about her. There's even, I think, although I could be my reading, a hint that she might have harmed herself, but it's never followed up on. And we never really know if Sharon herself was a victim of sexual abuse. She doesn't think she was, but she also admits that she isn't quite sure. She's not sure she can trust her own memory. And then there's Mel's feelings toward Sharon. There's a suggestion that maybe she's in love with her in a romantic way, but it's, it's left pretty murky. And I guess my first question is, whether you see these things as related the way that I'm kind of suggesting that they are. And then the second, you know, why, why leave them unanswered? Why make that choice? Mm. Well, I think one of, one of the really important goals I had when I was developing this story and something that I'm really pleased to run across in, in fiction, though it may be, you know, uh, less satisfying than a tidy ending, is when we address the truth of how little we really know the people around us and how little we know ourselves, really, in a very real way, and how much of life is is really filled with with questions and with sort of open-ended conclusions and, and room for speculation, even among among your oldest friends and certainly within families. You know, I, I think that there's uh, there's something to be said for for the limits of perspective and and just how much of our lives we we keep to ourselves. I think everyone is limited by the parameters of their their perspective. Everyone has to contend as a human being with a, a certain kind of isolation. And when when everything's kind of all out in the open in, in fiction and relationships can be labeled as, you know, one term or another, uh, that really bothers me. I'm always, whenever I run across it, it's, it's kind of like, I don't buy that. You know, I think uh, human nature is a lot a lot messier than that. The fact that Mel will never know uh, what really happened to her mother, despite any reports she gets, despite any, you know, hunches she has, she will never know. She will never know. And Sharon will really never know the scope of Mel's feelings for her. That's, that's a question that she will, she will never have the answer to. And, you know, I think our, our lives, our lives mirror that in a really, in a really important way. In fact, I think life is kind of, life is, is a series of loose strings that kind of go to weird different directions and then stop. There's nothing definitive about them. 
Did you feel like you knew the answers as the writer? No, no, I, I, I still don't. And it's, it's kind of, it's an amazing thing. And, and it's also something that if, if you're, if you're talking to, if you tend to, if you're talking to other people who don't read a lot of books and who don't, you know, read fiction or write fiction, you end up sounding unbalanced (laughs) when you, you say, you know, I know these people, these people are, are flesh and blood to me and they're not me. They're, they're separate from me. So with that said, no, I feel like I don't have a lot of these answers. I, I can't definitively say what happened to to Mel's mom. Definitely, I I can't really tell you what what really happened to Sharon when she was a kid. Though I have a strong hunch, and I think a lot of a lot of readers do too. I think at this point, my my opinion is as valid as the readers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I've let it go out into the world. It's it's not really mine anymore. You know, I often wonder how a writer knows where to end. There, mm. there are a few places in this book that seem like natural stopping points. Like we were talking about when Mel and Sharon's second movie comes out. You know, the book begins with the first movie, so it almost would seem like a natural kind of circular place of ending to end with the second movie. Or it could have ended, and I'm going to give another spoiler alert here, when Mel dies, because death can feel like a natural stopping point. But you didn't choose either of these and uh, in the last book that we did on this show, which was Reed Crame's A Winter in Anna, there's a mm-hmm. line in that book how he talks about where an ending is just the place where you choose to lift your hands from the keys. So how did you know when and how to do that? Well, again, it took a few drafts. Uh, <laughs> and it, it took some really wonderful end, uh, editing on the part of my Random House editor, who's wonderful. And my agent's also a really great editor. But I, I definitely, I knew that Sharon picking up the loose pieces of Mel's last project, solo, as her first real solo project, I, I knew that that was, it was a decent stopping place and it was a telling stopping place, if anything, because so much of the first half of the book follows what happens to Vought and Kisses after they actually put something out into the world. It follows what happens to their relationship and what happens to them as individuals after, you know, after they've made a, a piece of work and the, the work has actually made a little bit a little bit of money. So, um, you know, securing the way for further projects. And so I, I knew that ending on a project would be, the story would feel truncated. In a way, while their work is an important part of the narrative, I think their their lives are are equally as important. Um, it, well, more so actually. So, I wanted I wanted to follow Sharon through. I wanted I really wanted Sharon, you know, because I love her. I wanted her to land on both feet, and she does. She does, and that's you know, in and of itself, it's. It's as much of a happy ending as as I think that we can really have with her. So to end on that on that scene where she kind of she takes her life in both of her hands and she begins to steer for maybe the first time ever. That was that was something of a high note. I felt I felt content leaving her in that room. 
Kayla, it has been great talking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Okay, well, thanks so much, Sid. This was a pleasure. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager, two of my very favorite people with whom to talk about books. Jessica was most recently on Book Talk discussing Mark Sloka's novel, Brewster. This past September, Annie went back to her full-time job teaching English to students at our our alma mater, Stuyvesant High School, which explains why she hasn't been on the show since we talked about Nathan Hill's The Knicks. Annie and Jessica, I'm so happy the three of us are together again. Me too, Sid. I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to start by talking about an argument that Sharon and Teddy have about two-thirds of the way through the book. To give some context to our listeners, Teddy was Sharon's childhood neighbor and best friend, and his father, it turns out, was a child molester and a child pornographer. And perhaps the most traumatic moment in Sharon's life is when, as children, Teddy shows her some of the pictures his father has taken of these little girls. Now, at the point in the novel I'm talking about, Sharon and Teddy have reconnected as adults. They've become romantically involved, and Sharon and Mel, unbeknownst to Teddy, are working on a movie about Sharon's life in which this moment in which Teddy shows Sharon the pictures is central. Teddy finds out about this when Mel and Sharon show him, along with some other people, the first 15 minutes of the film that they're working on. And then this argument ensues, and I'm on page 257. Teddy says, Did you come to town to specifically solicit my permission? And Sharon says, We do not need your permission. That story in there is mine. It belongs to me. It's not your story. Teddy says, That's such a weak argument. And moreover, it's a lie. It's my prerogative to say no. So I guess I wanted to start there with this question of when your story involves other people and when telling your story can hurt other people, is it all right to tell it anyway? And do you think the book comes down on one side or the other? And where do you come down? That is a big and really interesting first question. <laughs> um, I, I think... I've been I've been actually thinking about this as I was taking notes on the book. And I think that the book itself does not come down on one side or another. I think that Sharon is very conflicted about this question. And my take on it is that she both feels that she doesn't have a choice, that this is something she has to do to tell her story, even if it involves other people's stories, but that ultimately she thinks that she doesn't know if she really has the right. You know, earlier in the book, she thinks of her, her partnership with Mel as this very unified thing and sees them together as, as a we doing this project and mining information. She actually uses that, that language on page 206. She says, we came to mine him for information. And when we get what we want, we'll go back to Faulkner. And when we get what we want from there, we'll leave Faulkner too. And so there's this real strength in this is the thing we are doing and it doesn't matter who gets in our way. But at the very end of the book, after Mel's death, when she sees these sketches that Mel made of her and she's trying to sort of process what Mel's feelings were about her ultimately, on 351 she says, 
I'm beginning to understand what I did to Teddy, what he was trying to tell me when I look at Mel's sketches. Finding yourself in a world someone else has made is a theft that is difficult to put into words. The magnitude of your life smeared to their order, your voice impersonated or worse, winked out altogether. I know what Mel and I did with memory. We ran our endurance dry with our life stories, trying to reproduce them, translate them, make them manageable enough to coexist with. We made them smaller, disfiguring them with our surgeries. We were young. We did not know what we were doing. So when I read that, I wondered whether this was Sharon disowning what she and Mel had done, you know, whether that confidence from earlier in the book, whether she's saying, okay, well, no, that was that was us being young and not understanding rather than that was just the price of art. Yeah, I, 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 it's so interesting that you bring up that quote because I had that quote written down too. And when I read it, it actually took me back upon reflection mm-hmm. to the Honus Caudill story where there are these photos of girls with blacked out eyes. Their eyes are, she says, actually smudged out. They're censored. And the way in which when someone else sees you, when someone else tells your story for you, it's as if you become unable to see yourself. But what I think is so interesting is that she actually ends up taking those sketches, Mel's story of her, and there's a suggestion that she's going to own it and she's going to reclaim her story, which takes me back to Teddy because Teddy's story is her story as well. It is the story of her awakening to the harsh adult world. It is, in a sense, the story of her own violation. And so she has every right to tell it because it's the way she can reown her story. On 262, Mel says to her, when you take the things that happen to you, the things that make you who you are and you use them, you own them. Things aren't just happening to you anymore. Make this thing because you are compelled to and because it's yours. And so channeling Mel for a minute, Mel doesn't say this to Teddy. She doesn't particularly like Teddy. But I think if she valued Teddy, she would say to Teddy, if you don't like this story, the response is to tell your own. I was just about to mention that same quote on page 262 where Mel says that. I think this the novel really in some ways, comes down on both sides. I think the novel's acknowledging that this is Sharon's story, and she does own it, and she does have the right to tell it, but it does hurt Teddy to tell it, and that that's real, and that is a consequence sometimes of telling your own story, and that it can't be denied or dismissed or minimized, and it doesn't try to do that. And and it does it Throughout, you know, the first movie they make is the story of Mel's life. And it's really the story of her mother, who was a prostitute and who went to jail when Mel was 13 and who was abusive and neglectful. And that is Mel's story. And Mel has the right to tell it. But we never really know what, if anything, it might do to her mother. And there is this line where where Sharon says, you know, what what goes unsaid about Mel's mother is we never asked her permission. They never even told her they were making it. And there is this hint in the book that maybe Mel's mother saw it. Maybe other people in the prison where she was incarcerated saw it. 
I think there's a hint that maybe she harmed herself, uh, which led to her death. And, you know, we were left kind of wondering if maybe that had anything to do with her seeing the movie or having read the reviews of the movie and knowing how Mel perceives her as a mom. And I think we don't know the answers to that, but Mel is asking all those same questions. And so Mel also, as much as she says to Sharon, this is your story, you have the right to tell it, Mel is also struggling with this question of when you tell your own story and it involves other people, you can do damage and you have to acknowledge that and decide that you're going to make your peace with it. Yeah, I... Uh, so this brings up a really interesting parallel for me about the difference between taking someone's story and having it given to you. So, you know, Mel tells her mother's story and she never speaks to her mother again. And for Sharon, the reverse occurs where her mother comes to see her and plops down in a chair and actually says, it's this amazing moment, you've never drawn me. And it becomes a gift that the mother gives to her child to invite Sharon to take ownership in a way of her image. And it brings them to a moment of closeness that they don't have anywhere in the book. That's a really interesting um, moment. I hadn't thought to, to connect that moment between Sharon and her mother, the amazingly named Mrs. Kisses. Um, but, <laughs> I love uh, that. <laughs> yeah, it's so great. It's so great. But that, I mean, that moment with her mother doesn't seem like that's, at least at the moment, going to connect to a larger artistic purpose, a larger artistic project. You know, that seems sort of like a, I don't know, it was interesting to me that that the large artistic projects, both Nashville Combat and Irrefutable Love, are based so firmly on Mel's and Sharon's trauma and working through that trauma, that there was this incredible personal stake in both of those stories. And I wondered what that said about what, what the book is arguing about the creation of art and what it means to be a real artist and whether art is about digging into the self, if that's what makes it real, if that's what makes you a real artist in this formulation. Yeah, I, I feel like there's this very romantic idea in the book that I find compelling about being forced to make art and that 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 impetus, that impulse comes from the vision part of it, the, the imagination, the creativity, but is also fueled, at least for these two women, always by the need to own what they saw, you know, to to recreate their stories in order to be free of the power that those stories have over them. Um, yes, they have to open their trunk, such as it were, <laughs> right? There's that moment in Irrefutable Love where the, the defining image that becomes the defining image of the movie that is mentioned in all the reviews and all the, all the YouTube comments where Sharon and Teddy open the trunk uh, that contains the photographs of these little girls and it becomes this image of like taking the thing that has traumatized you and and reclaiming the power. On page 254, it says, this will become a driving image for our movie, an encouragement of confrontation, of taking control of what haunts you, stealing its power. Open your trunk. It is an affirmation of why we made it, why we were so compelled to keep pressing forward. Repeated dozens of times in the comment sections, open your trunk. 
And and that brings me to Sharon says on on 131 she's she's talking about exactly exactly that. She she says the ability of anyone who's been on the receiving end of something violent to grasp the details that remind them of their humiliation, smells, colors, sounds and blur these details so that they become foreign, someone else's property. It's a cultivated skill requiring time, experience, unspeakable mental real estate. It is, for the desperate, the only chance to leave what happened with the part of yourself that is still yours. Children learn it. Boys, but more often and more closely, girls. When girls learn it, they learn it for the rest of their lives, inventing two separate planes on which they exist. The life of the surface presented for others, and the life forever lived on the inside, the one that owns you. So I was interested in... in Sharon talking about how this moment of violence splits you onto these two separate planes. And I connected that back to um, this mention that she, she mentions this, this cartoon that used to be a comic book and then was a, a cartoon on TV called The Max, which is the story of a superhero living in two separate but real dimensions. In one, he's in a city and he's a homeless man. And in the other, he's in a kind of a jungle landscape. And his social worker in the first is his jungle queen in the second. And so he has these these two totally different existences. And I wondered whether what Sharon is saying here is that the creation of art is the thing that reunites those planes in some way, or whether it's the thing that allows you to push forward in one of those planes in order to handle the other? Does art here serve as a way for you to escape, which it seems to, you know, and, and when, when Mel and Sharon talk about like falling into watching cartoons when they were kids, and then when they talk about working on their own work, um, being inside the work takes over everything else in their life. It, so is, is the work the all-consuming thing that pushes yourself away or is it also the thing that helps you find your real self? How do those two planes come together? Well, I noticed right after Sharon's stroke on page 90, she talks about how she had these, these, two, these two worlds. She says, I had faith in the life I had created for myself, the serviceable, productive outer persona and my inner life, the one I could inhabit in my head. I prided myself on the ability to control the two. Now both have collapsed. And it was like this division is not sustainable. And I saw the stroke as that moment in the book where keeping the two separate can no longer continue. And so both collapse and she has to rebuild. And it's almost like this moment of rebirth, you know, I mean, literally, like she has to learn how to talk and eat and draw again. And she is being reborn. And it is it is at that moment that they decide to make this movie of her life. And I think it is like trying to put these pieces together. The question I had about it, though, was there's a lot of conversation about how sometimes in taking control of your story and in retelling it, you change the memory. I thought that was particularly interesting in light of today's political climate and this conversation that's been going on around alternative facts. There's a way in which you rewrite your story and, and the more you tell it in the way you've chosen to tell it, the more you come to believe it and it becomes a kind of truth to you. So for example, Teddy does not remember having shown Sharon the photographs. And I believe that he doesn't remember that. I believe that the story he's told himself about that summer with her when his mother wasn't there, 
he has now told it to himself in such a way that that is not part of the narrative. And he doesn't disbelieve her, but he is, he is kind of struck by how can I not know that? And Sharon has told herself this story in which that is all that has happened. And it may be that that's all that has happened, or it may be that she was a victim, but she has told herself the story in such a way that she doesn't even know what truth is. So for me, that raises this question of is art dangerous in some way? Because can it change? Like, is there a real truth that we're in danger of distorting? So I think that's fascinating because I feel like Sharon's journey in the book is in some ways the opposite of that. She actually unpeels her story and gets to understand it better and better. So I went back to reread this book before the show and I was so struck that when we first encountered the list, it's about her boyfriends. It's about her relationships with men and the crushes that she has and it's portrayed as this kind of neurotic but kind of fun thing that she does and only slowly do we begin to understand how the pictures that she draws in the list sort of all focus around this one central event with Honus Caudill and with opening her trunk and looking at the photos inside and the final version of irrefutable love in some sense even Teddy drops away and it really becomes just about Sharon herself and her own experiences and her own journey. So, Sid, I completely agree with you about that danger of retelling a memory and, and, and changing and distorting it. But the book seems to suggest that we can go in the other way as well, that we can, through telling a story, peel back the layers to get to the real truth of it. And I think that, that the book also suggests that there isn't necessarily an irrefutable truth. And I think that Kayla Ray Whitaker said that, something similar to that in, in the interview with you, Sid, we don't necessarily know who we are. We don't, you know, that there are facts of a situation, but then there's also our perception of that situation, which you can't really tease out in a way. One of the things that struck me about this book was how down on herself and her own artistic abilities Sharon is. And I and I, I read this as a particularly female thing, you know, sort of this this question of as a female artist, how accurate is my self-perception? You know, am I constantly questioning myself? I feel like Sharon is just constantly questioning herself for so much of this book and thinking like, well, Mel's the one with the real talent and everybody who's looking at me and assessing me and assessing my work is right and I'm I'm not really a real artist like Mel's really the real artist and then as you go through the book you start to get these glimpses that all these other people around Sharon are actually reacting to her in a far different way than she thinks they are and so what what is the fact of that is she accurate in her initial self perception or is she more accurate at the end when she realizes how Mel saw her and starts to realize her own level of brilliance. So when you talk about Sharon's brilliance, that comes to another interesting thing I really wanted to bring up, which is not just what is the story you tell, but how you tell it. You know, Sharon thinks that because Nashville combat isn't her story, she's not the one telling it. But I feel like one of the sub-themes of this book is that the way we choose to tell our story, the art and the craft, which I, I loved reading about the craft of animation, is also what makes the story 
yours. And I'm really interested in how both Sharon and Mel use humor and a form uh, that they make deliberately sort of in your face and in some ways unrealistic to tell the most real and powerful stories of their lives. And I, I think about, you know, the, the light bright scene, which I loved so much. This is the scene. First, there's a real story of a light bright. And then there's an animated story where Mel can only tell her mother how angry she is through using this light bright machine to spell out. Can I say this on the radio? Okay. (laughs) Expletive you, mommy, in the light bright. And her mother laughs, right? So from the very beginning, she's telling a message that's about pain and anger, but in a way that other people find funny. And I think that's just a really interesting aspect of their storytelling as well. I'm also interested in, okay, so so comics are a very male area, a very male sort of purview. And, and all of the comics and the, and the cartoonists and everything that, that, that Whitaker mentions in the book, I'm pretty sure they are all male. And, and the question of the reception that you get as the creator of movies and the creator of animated movies in particular, um, that Sharon and Mel get the question of their role as women making these kinds of movies and kind of co-opting or using these these strategies that have been seen as male, I think is is a big question in the book as well, you know. And and I one of the other things that I loved about it was the way they describe the way Whitaker describes the collaboration between the two of them. Sharon says Mel is our fire starter, the flint against the stone, sparking with ideas. She started a hundred projects she's never finished, but I'm our finisher. I make us finish. Mm. I mind the story, knowing that the story will serve as the supporting beams upon which our little men will dance, all that which, under Mel's fingers, will come alive. And they, when they talk about their stories coming together, they have this seamless way that they work together, that they're just immersed in the world of the creation. And they talk about it as... Mel says it's the closest I'll ever come to giving birth. They talk about it in this, in this, as if they're creating children in a way. And I found that very powerful coming from these two women in this very male artistic world. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was interesting. The book is not called the cartoonists, right? It's called the animators and animate has really kind of a different meaning. Like it's, 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 it is this sense of giving life to something. And I think that notion of giving life to something, giving birth to something is really at the heart of it. There is a moment on uh, page 17 when Mel and Sharon have just met where Mel says to Sharon, it's the greatest thing you can do for something, giving it movement, possibility. And it is, I think that is how they see their art as kind of bringing something into the world that will then grow and reach other people and touch other people and change other people and it is this particularly female way of seeing how art can be like giving birth to something. Yeah, I just need to add a little more because I loved that section on page 16 and 17 where Mel sees that Sharon is an animator in her heart. And she looks at the sketch that Sharon has done of a dog. And she says, imagine your dog and then imagine it moving. You've made this like tension here. There's this potential to move. You were thinking about his next step 
even when you were drawing him like he is. And that seems to me so fundamental to these two women and to the author's conception of art that you're always poised towards motion, towards where the line is going next. You know, later Sharon says, recovering from her stroke, I, I can see again where the line is going, even if I can't go there yet. So that sense of perpetual anticipation that animates and fuels everything that they do together. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought about this book as a mother-daughter story, but the more we talk, the more I see the ways in which it is that a lot of this book is about Mel's relationship with her mother and the ways her mother failed her and Sharon's relationship with her mother and the way her mother fails her and how that maybe almost as much as any other traumatic event in their lives is what drives them. And that in some ways, maybe their art is a constant effort to understand and repair that and to be different than their mothers were. Mm. The final line um, in describing irrefutable love and describing what irrefutable love turns into, Sharon says, it is a chase. The woman needs to find her way out, become stronger, better, faster before she is consumed. To survive means to escape. And I think in terms of what we're saying here and Jessica, what you're saying about about um, moving forward and animation meaning moving forward and Sid, what you're saying about the relationships with mothers and then figuring out where you go out of those relationships and how you go past that and move through. I think that that, that line is very much about art in this book and about life in this book. Yeah, it's interesting that, as Jessica mentioned, in Irrefutable Love, which starts when Mel and Sharon start talking about it, which starts with Sharon's list of all the boyfriends, in the end, that becomes one brief montage and is not the central focus. And even Teddy only appears momentarily as kind of a moment of comfort as she's in this escape. But it is really ultimately about her journey and about her recognition that it is not a man or a relationship that is going to save her. It is her own ability to move herself forward through her life. And, you know, we, Kayla and I spoke in the interview about where the book ends and the book does end with her inner relationship, living with someone who seems like a very nice guy. And I was happy that she had someone like that, but it doesn't end with a moment between them. It ends with her drawing, her drawing, her story, her taking ownership of this story that Mel has started, but that she is going to finish her being aware of all the different ways it can go and end and her making choices. And I think that says a lot about how the book sees art as helping us to move ourselves through the world. Mm -hmm. Well, as ever, it has been great talking to both of you. I know you're both coming back on in just a few weeks to talk about Laurie Frankel's book. This is how it always is. So I look forward to that very much. But until then, thanks so much for being on Book Talk today. Thank you, Sid. It's always a pleasure. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Lucy Cochran recommends Nicola Yoon's young adult novel, Everything, Everything.
Hi, I'm Lucy Cochran, Children's Librarian at the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here to recommend and review a teen book, Everything Everything by Nicola Yoon. What would you do if you could never go outside? This is the story of Maddie, a teenage girl who has a rare condition that makes her literally allergic to the world. She cannot go outside. Anyone who comes to visit her has to go through a special cleaning process. Maddie's house is sealed up. Most days she talks only to her mom and her nurse, Carla. One day, a boy named Ollie moves next door and they become friends, mostly via email. Thanks to Ollie, Maddie has many new experiences. Through email messages, journal entries, charts, illustrations, lists, and more, you learn about Maddie's hopes and dreams. This book makes me appreciate the simple fact that I can go outside. Yoon writes in a way that makes you feel Maddie's frustration at being stuck inside and sympathize with her. Many teens feel that they are not normal and will, I think, be able to relate with Maddie on this level. This book is recommended for ages 14 and up and can be found in the Mitchell and Wilson branches of the New Haven Free Public Library. Our librarians are happy to assist with readers' advisory questions. As a reminder, all books discussed in Book Talk can be found at the New Haven Free Public Library. Thanks, Lucy. On our next show, airing February 22nd, we'll be talking about the new novel Pachinko, first with the author, Min Jin Lee, and then with my guests, Kate Kincaid and Sophronia Scott. Min first appeared on Book Talk a year and a half ago, talking about her first novel, Free Food for Millionaires, which came out in 2007. I have been waiting a long time for her second novel, and it was worth the wait. Go get it from your local library or your local independent bookstore today. As ever, you can share your thoughts on this episode of Book Talk or any other on Facebook or Twitter, or email me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. You can see what's coming up and listen to old episodes on our website, booktalkradio.net. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you.